Thank you. You can be seated. If you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles as well to uh, the book of Philippians chapter 2. Thanks to the choir for leading us in worship. And uh, this morning we're going to continue in our series in the book of Philippians that we've been in now for a few weeks. I think this is week number 6. We started chapter 2 last week. Not really moving at any certain pace. Once we get to the holidays, if we're still in Philippians, more than likely we're going to kind of go a little different direction for a brief little hiatus and uh, deal with the holidays. I love preaching passages that deal with the whole concept of Christmas uh, once we get there. But if we're not done with Philippians yet, we'll pick it back up again at the first of the year. But moving through message number six today, uh, looking in chapter two. So hold your spot there and uh, really, really excited about the passage we're going to look at today. In some ways, it's kind of a part two. From, uh, from last Sunday in some ways. I've treated them to where they stand alone, but in a lot of ways, they, uh, they, they, one flows right in to the other. So maybe you've realized today, maybe you're one of those who has recognized that we live in a culture uh, where status really kind of determines privilege. And uh, that's sort of the way our culture rolls, you know, that, that whatever your status is, then that in a lot of ways speaks to whatever your rights are, what your privilege is. And we've, we've rolled this way for a long time without even really realizing it. Uh, maybe you were raised in a family like I was where I have two older sisters. One's gone on to heaven. Another lives in North Georgia. My brother lives here close. He's seven years older than me. And so whenever I was especially younger, we were in school together and either my mom or my dad would drive us to school. And, and the unspoken privilege, right, was that the status of being older yielded you the privilege of the front seat. Did any of you have those kinds of little status deals, right, where you were privileged to ride in the front seat if you were the oldest in the family, right? That, that's, a, that's just one example that you maybe never even realized it, that sat, status yields certain types of privilege. If you play sports and you're at the high school level and you're a freshman, well, you know what? More than likely as a freshman, you're carrying the equipment, you're storing everything back away again at the end of practice, you're dragging everything out at the beginning of practice. Why? Because the status of being a freshman grants you the privilege of carrying everything, right? The, the, the seniors, they get the rings. They get to wear the rings. You don't have freshman rings. You don't have sophomore rings. You don't have junior rings. It's a senior ring. Why? Because the status gives you the privilege of getting a ring. This is the way our culture works. This is the way, the way it's driven. If you're in a position at work, the longer you've been there, right, you get to choose what, what vacation you want. For example, if you've been there the longest and Christmas rolls around and you want Christmas off, well then, more than likely, your status, your longevity gives you the privilege of being able to choose when you want your vacation. But the new person at the bottom end of the scale who's just rolling in, they don't have any say. They got no privilege. Right? They haven't achieved that status. Even the commercials on TV, it tells us we're about to see a bunch of them. Once the elections are done and we're into Christmas, you're going to say, hey, drive this car. You're going to have a certain kind of status. Right? That's the way our culture rolls. That's exactly the way our culture operates. It's this whole understanding that status determines privilege. Well, when we get into Philippians chapter 2 and the passage we're going to look at today, it, it's going to run countercultural to everything that I've just described. Everything I've just described. Because the picture we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2, especially in the passage we're going to see today, is that, that status doesn't drive privilege at all. In fact, the scriptures are going to turn that completely upside down and on its head and backwards and inside out all at the same time. Philippians chapter 2, we looked at beginning last Sunday. Today, we're going to see an example of what we covered last week. So let me just give you a little bit of a crash course. For some of you, you've been here for this entire series. Uh, this is, uh, I want you to see this in context. And so I'm going to give a little bit of a reminder of what we've covered so far. Others of you, maybe this is your first Sunday. I'm going to give you a kind of a quick little 
general flyover of what we've covered already in the book of Philippians so far up to this point. So in Philippians chapter 1, the whole entire theme, I would say, of chapter 1 is the gospel. Paul says, get the gospel forward, move it forward, get it out there, advance it, push it, share it, live it, right? That's the whole theme, in my opinion, of chapter 1. And in verse 12, what Paul says as it relates to the gospel, he says, listen, even my my imprisonment, he says, is ultimately advancing the message of the gospel. You can see it right there, chapter 1, verse 12. I'm in prison, I'm in chains, he's in Rome, he's writing to believers in the city of Philippi, the church there, and he says, me being locked up in prison here, me being jailed because of the gospel is actually accomplishing the advance of the message of the gospel. Guards are hearing the gospel, the Roman Empire is being saturated, he says to the Philippians, you're sharing the gospel, good things are happening as it relates to the gospel. My imprisonment is in some ways even, he would say, a good thing. You get down to verse 18, and Paul says, there are those that are preaching the gospel other than myself, he says, that that are doing it with the right reasons. And then he says, there's a group of people that are preaching the gospel for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives. He says, I don't care. I rejoice. At least the gospel is getting proclaimed. I mean, all the way through chapter one, he's given us this theme of advancing the gospel. And when you get down to verse 27, He gives three things for us to focus on. He says in verse 27, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, live out what you say you believe. Don't say you believe Jesus and that you uh, adhere to his teachings in, in one sense and then go out and live something totally different. He says, live in a manner that conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Don't be one person at work, one person on campus, one person in the neighborhood, and then a whole different person whenever you're at church. No, you live out the message of the gospel. And then he says, stand firm in one spirit. And then thirdly, he says, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Right? Paul says, do these things. It's all about getting the gospel out there. And and remember, when we stand firm, look at what it says in the next next verse, verse 28. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. That if we do those things, if you live a life that's distinctly different from the world, and if you stand firm in the truths of Scripture, what matters most, if you do that well in this culture, and if you strive and live in a way to try to partner with other believers to push the gospel forward and to push it more quickly, you're going to take heat for that, right? There's going to be a cost that's going to come from that. Sometimes the cost is going to be personal. Sometimes the cost is going to be public, right? But if you stand in a way that's different from the world, right, preaching and living, rather, a message that's different from the world, you are going to take some shots. And it's not always going to be fair. And it doesn't mean you always jump up and try to defend yourself. No, it goes with the territory. There are always going to be opponents. And Paul's telling the Philippian believers, just keep pushing the gospel forward. Live it and proclaim it. And then we got to chapter 2 last Sunday, and we covered the first four verses. This is, in a nutshell, what we focused on. Look at verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul calls us to a life of selfless humility. Not just Paul, but God, right? The Bible calls us to a life of selfless humility. Humility, that we literally lay aside selfishness and we literally 
in practice, not just in theory, going out and saying, well, that was really, that was really a good word there. And No, we're supposed to live in a way that, that literally considers others as more important than ourselves with selfless humility. And what Paul then does in the next verses that we're focusing on today, beginning in verse 5, is that he gives Jesus ultimately as the example, the shining example of everything that he's just said. Live without selfishness, look out for the interests of others, consider others as more important than yourselves. In verse 5 he says, and here's the example, and it's the person of Jesus. So what is humility? When he talks about putting on humility of mind, what is Humility. I looked it up in the dictionary because I like to just share the literal. Sometimes I think the literal definition is helpful. And I looked it up, and you know what the definition was that I found for humility? It said the state of being humble. Isn't that really helpful? That's incredibly helpful, isn't it? I mean, that was the definition. So I looked down to like the secondary definition, Webster's Dictionary, and it said this is humility freedom from pride or arrogance. Freedom from pride. Or arrogance. And I, and I can see that. I mean, I can get it. You can probably see that, that. That being humble is to be free from pride, to be free from self-centeredness, to be free from arrogance. I get that. But I like the definition that I made up myself a whole lot better. Okay? So I'm going to share that one with you because this is the way I understand humility. You're free to disagree completely. And that's okay. You won't hurt my feelings. You won't be the first to ever disagree with me. But I, to me, this captures what humility is because it rolls in kind of that theological side to it that I think is the most important. This is my understanding of humility. Humility is to ultimately see oneself, to see ourselves in the light of God's infinite greatness and God's infinite authority, right? The humility is to see ourselves in light of, right, in the context of who God is, his infinite greatness that we don't have in and of ourselves, and his infinite authority that we don't have at all, right? That's what humility is. It's not just to understand it or agree with it, but to grasp it. And to literally embrace it and to live that out in our lives. That we see ourselves through the lens of seeing God in his greatness, infinite greatness, and seeing God in his infinite authority. Now here's the thing. It doesn't mean, some people think humility is coming to a place in our lives where we see ourselves as just like worm. You know, like a worm. Or or it's like, I'm just of no value. My life is worthless. I don't mean anything in this world. They think when they get to that point, well, they've achieved humility. That is not the picture of humility. Never did I say, nowhere does the Bible teach us that we see ourselves as without value. In fact, what Jesus did on the cross, we're going to see this in a second, proves our our incredible worth and our incredible value. Your life is of infinite value, right? Jesus proved that at the cross. Humility isn't isn't, uh, distancing yourself from that. It's understanding that, but seeing yourself against the backdrop of God and his his greatness and his authority. To me, I think that's what humility ultimately truly is. That's where we find ultimately our, our value. And here's the thing, that has a lot to say about our perceived rights and privileges in this world. And against all of that, Paul says, I'm going to give you the example of what I'm talking about. And his name is Jesus. And so let's go ahead and jump into the passage today. Some would say perhaps the most important section, if we can label it that, of the entire book of Philippians is what we're looking at today. Beautiful passage of scripture beginning in verse 5. So let's jump in. Philippians 2, starting with verse 5 through and verse 6. We're going to move eventually through verse 11. 
So Paul writes, God has inspired him, the Holy Spirit has inspired him, so this is God's word to us. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now he's about to describe Jesus for the next few verses. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul is saying Jesus is that example, that ultimate example of selfless humility. And let's walk through the passage here. He describes him in verse 6. He says, although he existed in the form of God. Now, what does that mean? Is Paul saying that Jesus was just sort of an ordinary man, but when he walked this earth, he kind of reflected God better than everybody else did, or is there more to it? Well, there's more to it because when we begin to understand this word form, especially in the original language, it means to be true or of the exact nature of someone else. Hebrews says much the same, that Jesus was the exact representation. I don't mean was as in he doesn't exist anymore. Was meaning when he walked this earth, he was the exact representation of who God is. He by nature was God when he walked this earth and he has always been God. That's what that word form means. That when you saw him, he was God amongst us. John chapter 1 verse 14 and he dwelt and, and the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is eternal. Jesus is who he's speaking of here. He's showing him by that wording even that he is God. Look over to Colossians, another book that Paul ultimately wrote from from prison. Colossians chapter 1. This is Paul saying, uh, kind of expanding that understanding of Jesus being God, that he existed in the form of God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. You got your spot there, right? If you don't, you can cheat. We've got it on the, uh, on the image behind me. Colossians 1 verse 15, describing Jesus, here's what Paul says. He says, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is Paul saying here? Paul is again affirming the fact that Jesus is God. He's making it unmistakably clear. Now, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house and they knock on your door and they say, hey, we're from the Kingdom Hall. We would like to have a conversation with you. Have you seen this beautiful brochure that talks about how you can have peace and comfort in this world? And you say, oh, no, thank you. I'm a Christian. Well, their follow-up is going to be, oh, well, we're Christians too. And as the conversation begins to unfold, you're going to begin talking about, oh, well, we believe that Jesus is God. And they're going to say, well, take a look in your Bible in Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 15. So why does it say then in verse 15 that he is the firstborn of all creation? And the Jehovah's Witness will say to you, sure sounds like he's been created to us. But what they don't understand and what we sometimes miss is that firstborn is an English word. And it doesn't mean that he literally was the firstborn or first created any more than the word, the compound word fireman means a man on fire, (laughs) 
right? It's an English word. What does the English word literally mean, firstborn? What is the Greek word behind it? More importantly, what does that mean? It means superiority. It means supremacy. It means that Jesus is superior. He's supreme over all. It makes it very clear in the context of the passage. He's not a created being, as they will try to tell you. It means that he is the creator. That's what Colossians 1 says. I mean, it couldn't say it any more clearly. I mean, it says it in verse 16, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible. It makes it very clear of who Jesus is. So when you go back then, let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. When you go back then to verse 6, it says, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does that mean? That even though Jesus, when he walked this earth, was God among us, what does it mean when Paul says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped? Well, to understand that a little better, let's go to the next verse, verse 7. What does verse 7 say? Let's, let's add to it. But he emptied himself, taking the form, here's that same word, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There are theologians that have argued what the word emptied means. The Greek language, it comes from the Greek word kenosis, and it means exactly what it says. Paul never tells us what Jesus emptied himself of. He just said he emptied himself. He doesn't say what he emptied himself of. Some theologians, wrongly, will say that he emptied himself of his deity when he walked this earth. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. But they'll say, well, Jesus was God. He existed forever. He's the creator. But when he came to earth for that 33 years, he laid aside his deity. And then when ultimately he was crucified and rose again and ascended back to the Father, then he kind of like picked up that deity and put it back on again. The, The Bible never teaches that anywhere. In fact, we know Jesus did not empty himself of his deity. He certainly didn't empty himself of his power, as some would say, because the reason we know he didn't empty himself of his power because he raised someone from the dead three times, right? And uh, he calmed the storm. I mean, the storm is blowing, the winds are blowing, the waves are crashing, and the disciples are losing their minds, and they wake him up and they call on him, and what does he say? He says three words, peace be still, and the, the, uh, the, the, the wind lays down, the waves lay down, everything submits to his power, right? He didn't lay aside his power. He healed the sick and he raised the dead. And he did all the miracles that he did, turning water into wine. And, and, and all of that was a display of the power of God. No one else can just call that, command that to happen. He did it because he's God. He didn't lay aside his power. He didn't lay aside his deity because he would say in John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. And it doesn't mean like a husband and wife saying, oh, we're one. This is my soulmate. No, no, it's a lot different than that. He said, we are one. We are the same. You see me, you see God. How do we know that? Because in John 10, 30, right after he made that statement, the Jews that are opposed to him picked up stones. They're ready to stone him to death. In fact, the whole reason he got crucified on the Jewish side of things was because they called it blasphemy that he claimed to be God. So he didn't lay aside his deity. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. So what does it mean? Go back to Philippians. This is so important. Follow me here. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? Here's what it means. That he laid aside the rights and the privileges that he carried as God when he walked this earth. Still fully God, still had all the power of God, but he laid aside the rights and the privileges that were his by virtue of being God while he walked this earth. 
That's what that's talking about. And earlier in verse 6, when it says that even though he existed in the form and the nature of God, he chose to take on the form. Let's go back again. He chose to take on the form of a bond servant. In the Greek language, that's the Greek word doulos. It can be translated slave. He willingly took on that particular position. It was a humble form that he embraced. Fully God, fully man, taking on the form of a servant, of a slave, and doing so willingly, never laying aside his deity, never laying aside his power, but laying aside his rights and his privileges that came with being God. Listen to what Charles Ryrie has said. He's a theologian who comments on this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, who though of the same nature as God, he did not think this something to be exploited to his own advantage. That's a great way of putting it. That Even though Jesus existed on this earth fully God, he did not consider that something to be exploited to his own advantage. So that when he's at the, at the very moments before the cross, he could have called down legions of angels, right? This is God, and he chose not to. Even though very nature, God, he chose not to exploit that to his own advantage. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 53. This is an interesting passage. Isaiah chapter 53, written 700, maybe 700, uh, 750 years before Jesus would, uh, would come to earth. Isaiah the prophet is writing. Look at what he says. This amazing description, Isaiah 53 verse 7. Speaking of Jesus, now this is prophecy, 700, 750 years before Jesus would come. He says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. He did not put into place, he did not put into, uh, into practice the rights and privileges that were his. He embraced servanthood. Verse 8 even adds to it. Look back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Philippians 2, verse 8. Let's take a peek there if we can. I'll use my Bible. (laughs) Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, here's the word, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being found in appearance as a man. He existed in the form of God, fully God. He, he ultimately brought, he, he came to earth. He took on the form of a bondservant. And it says here in verse 8 that he came also as fully man. Now what does this mean? The, the, if anybody ever tries to argue with you, let's say the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're coming back the next weekend. Right, they're knocking on that door again. And you say, well, no, you know what I've been thinking about this. And I believe in the Trinity. They're going to say, well, nowhere in the Bible does it say Trinity. And you're going to be, oh, man. Well, they got me on that one. Well, it doesn't say Kingdom Hall either, but they don't have an issue with that, right? So, so just because it doesn't say it doesn't mean it's not there. You see all through Scripture, the, the whole, even from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, you see the concept of the Trinity. This is what this is talking about, that Jesus, God himself, fully God and fully man, Completely deity, but also completely humanity. So, so what does this mean? I've used this illustration before. This is what helps me to understand what this looks like. So let's just say for the sake of argument, let's go back a few years. Uh, for those of you who are track fans, you like the Olympics, you love watching track and field. We're going back five years or so now uh, to a man named uh, Usain Bolt. 
Usain Bolt was, uh, in my opinion, the fastest human being that ever ran on the face of this earth. Won multiple gold medals, blew away uh, his competitors virtually every single race, it seemed, almost mocking them when he crossed the finish line. Incredibly fast human being. Let's just say that we're at a little picnic, and, uh, and I'm there, and, and Usain Bolt is there, and we're going to have a little three-legged race. Like back in the old days, you're going you're to strap each other's leg to your partner. You're going to race and see who gets to the finish line the fastest. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that at this little three-legged race, that uh, my partner is, is Usain Bolt, right? Gold medalist, world, uh, world champion sprinter, 100 meter, 200 meter, incredibly fast, fastest man on the earth. Let's just say he's my partner. Now, they strap our legs together. Is Usain Bolt still, by nature, the fastest man on the face of the earth, an Olympic gold medalist, world champion, fastest man on the planet? Is he still that, even though he's strapped to my leg? Yes, he still is. That hasn't changed. His nature hasn't changed. He didn't lay aside his nature as world champion, fastest human, Usain Bolt. The problem is, however, he took on the severe limitation of being strapped to a 57-year-old man who's just a bit out of shape, who couldn't even get to the finish line, much less quickly. He's taken on that limitation by being strapped to my leg. He's still who he always has been, but now he's taken on limitations. When Jesus walked this earth... Never did he lay aside his deity. Never did he lay aside. Listen, don't miss this. Never did he lay aside who he is as God. But he took on the limitation of being found in appearance as a man. He could not be in multiple places at one time. He could only be at one place. He's either in Capernaum or Jerusalem or some other town. He can't be everywhere at the same time when he walked this earth. He took on the limitations of humanity. He would be subject to weariness tiredness. John chapter 4, when he sat down beside a well and ultimately would meet up with a woman who came to draw water and led her to salvation. But he was there because he was tired. He was human. He probably got blisters working in the carpentry shop. I mean, he was fully man, but also fully God. Paul says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. It's a choice that he made. He humbled himself. And then Paul is interesting how he describes this. By becoming obedient to the point of death. But then he says, even. Paul says, that doesn't hit it exactly the way I want to hit it. There's a qualifier here. Even death on a cross. And those who would have read this in Philippi, this Roman colony living in the midst of the Roman Empire that worshipped its emperor, Caesar, they would have, when he said, even death on a cross, it's almost like there would have been a collective, oh, <gasps> Because crucifixion in the Roman Empire was not for the high and mighty. More often than not, it was for the slaves in the culture, those towards the bottom by the world standards. And Paul says that it's this Jesus. Is the fog lifting a little bit? This Jesus who existed in the form of God, fully God, never laid aside his deity. He came here with every ounce of who he has always been throughout all of eternity, creator God who holds everything together. This Jesus came and he dwelt among us. And as an act of his own will, he chose not to exert his rights and privileges as God in this world. No, he he laid those rights and privileges down to the point to where he humbled himself to, 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 to to the very point of even allowing himself, can you imagine this, to be crucified as a sacrifice and as a substitute for you.
for you. To the point to where the most humiliating, excruciating means of execution is what he ultimately subjected himself to. And imagine the irony, the creator dying on a cross of wood that he made. And imagine the irony of God in a grave. Selfless humility. Counting you in that moment and me as more important than himself, even though we're not. David would look at God in Psalm 8, I believe it is, and say, who are we? (laughs) Who are we that you would have anything at all to do with us? And yet here he is, laying aside the privileges and the rights that were his by nature. Paul says, I'm not done yet. I've still got verse 9 and 10 and 11 to go. He says, therefore also God, the Father, highly exalted, exalted him, God the Son. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, everyone in existence. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Imagine that ringing in the ears of this Philippian church, again, who believed that Caesar was God in their culture. But these people knew. They knew we have a different king. We live in a, for a different kingdom. And this Jesus is unlike any other. He's God who came as man. He gave himself for us. And Paul now declares at the end of this passage of scripture that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. One day, everyone is going to bow. Everyone is going to see. Everyone will recognize in unmistakable fashion that Jesus is not just a good man who lived his life better than most. Not that he's just a great teacher who laid out principles that we live by still 2,000 years later. But no, everyone in all of existence one day will understand and embrace the fact, the truth, that this Jesus is God and creator and savior and Lord of all. That day's coming. And the sooner we acknowledge that, and the better our lives become. Humility is not thinking we're worthless. We're of great worth because he died for us. Humility is seeing ourselves in the light and against the backdrop of his infinite greatness and his infinite glory and his infinite authority over us. That's humility. And when we begin to see ourselves that way, that's what drives us ultimately to treat others as more important than ourselves and to embrace selfless humility in our own lives. Hey, let me ask you a question. So who, who is Jesus today to you? 
I mean, is, is, who, honestly, who is Jesus to you? Is he someone kind of out there that you come once every Sunday or maybe once every couple of Sundays a month or so and, and you sing songs about him and you learn a little bit about him and you try to stay awake whenever we're talking about him? Is that who he is to you to where he's just sort of out there, you know about him, but there's no real traction of him in your life? Is he that? Or, or maybe is Jesus to you... Um, some type of, uh, you know, like a magic lamp, you sort of rub that lamp whenever you have a need in your life and you know, money's tight this week and you've got to pay the house bill and, and, you know, let's just pray this prayer to Jesus and ask him to bless us. You know, is that who he is to you? Almost like a little figurine on your dashboard that you keep him sort of close because and, and, uh, you don't want to make him mad at you. Is that who Jesus is to you or is he the Jesus who drives your worship? Right? Because when we read a passage like this, this is why we worship. This is why we gather. This is why we sing songs of praise Him. This is why we open our Bibles at home when nobody else is around and we learn about Him. This is why we, we cross the street to tell other people about what He's done in our lives. This, why? Because this is who He is. But is He that to you? And are you reflecting Him? Because when you go back to where it started, verse 5. God says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. There Jesus is. Can you see him? It's in the Gospel of Matthew. He's being asked by his disciples, imagine this question, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) They're still hung up on greatness. Look at what Jesus' response was was for the sake of time. You can read it. On the, on the screen behind me, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus' response is just a little bit surprising in some ways. They ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 18, verse 2. And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then, verse 4, humbles himself as this child He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, you want to have a relationship with God? Then you need to become like a child. And it's kind of like he takes a little three-year-old maybe by the arm and brings him out. A three-year-old who trusts in their mom and their dad, trusts in figures of authority in their life. And he says, "If if you want to know God, you got to be just like this little one right here with a heart of trust. Not in mom and dad, not in a religious system, not in the rabbi in the temple, but a trust in me, he would say. And at the same time, he used the word humble, right? We lay aside our rights and our privileges to follow him. So that when things don't go our way, sometimes there's a place for us, obviously, often there's a place to say, this is not right, this is not true. But there's not always a place for us to say, these are my rights. Sometimes we lay those aside to love our neighbor and to serve this world in the same way he did. Even though he's God, laying down his rights and privileges for the salvation of the world. Hey, do you know him today? Do you have that relationship with him? Have you ever come to that place where you've said, Jesus, will you forgive me? Because even though I'm a person of value, you've proven it by your creating me. You've proven it by your dying for me. But Lord, even I understand that even in spite of that, I I am far from you because of my sin. 
and I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve forgiveness. But today, Jesus, I admit that I have sinned, and I invite you to forgive me and to be my Savior and my Lord. Have you ever done that? If not, and you want that relationship with him, he stands ready to answer that prayer if you're ready to do true business with him. And if you invite, he'll answer. And if you've already done that, do we have that same humility? Do we even want that same humility in our lives? If we do, he'll craft it. And your life will have an impact like it's never had before. Let's pray. Lord, we know this world is not looking for the next greatest Our world isn't looking for the next most powerful. Lord, what this world needs ultimately is you. And many times you're not the one they're looking for. But God, the way they see you is when we live a life that reflects you and puts you on display. Because even though we're far from perfect and even though we still have our struggles and even though we still wrestle with sin, even in our own lives as believers, Lord, it's when we apply selfless humility that that runs so counter to this world that we'll eat one another for lunch to try to get a leg up and to try to advance themselves. Lord, when we live as humble servants, selfless in this world, Lord, it puts you on display and our lives look different than everyone else. And Lord, in the midst of all that, you give us joy and you give us peace and we're not attached to the trappings of this world like so many others. And Lord, we have a purpose to our lives. And a sense of fulfillment that comes when our lives are yielded to you. Lord, that's what people are looking for. They just think that status and privilege and and accomplishment is going to give it. Lord, it doesn't. Only you do. So God, help us to be convinced of that in our own lives. Lord, that you are preeminent. You are supreme. That you, Jesus, are the only one to hold the place of primacy in our lives. That you are sovereign. That, that, that in the light of, of your infinite greatness and your, your infinite holiness and your infinite authority, Lord, we find our place beneath that. But God, thank you that it's there that we find life. And so, Lord, help us to embrace it, to enjoy it. Because we know that when we embrace humility in that way, that's where we really begin to understand grace. Lord, that despite the fact we don't deserve it, <laughs> You chose to give it through Jesus. And when we really understand humility, God, grace just shines brighter than we've ever seen that you did all of this for us just because you love us. Lord, help us to live that message to be a servant to those around us. And it doesn't mean that we just get walked over, taken advantage of. Lord, there are boundaries in life. Your word talks about some of those boundaries. But Lord, the attitude is that I'm a servant in this world to reflect Jesus. Help us to do it well. Help us to do it in our community. Help us to be a church that does that to where you can be seen clearly. And God, we thank you that not only will you bless that, but you'll get glory through that as well. For those who may have given their lives to Jesus today, Lord, begin to grow them in their new relationship. Give them the courage, God, to fill out that connection card or to share with one of us that they've made a decision to invite Jesus to save and forgive them. And Lord, if others are wanting to know more about what that means, give them the courage to fill out that card or to snag me after the service and say, I want to have a conversation. So God, thank you for all you do for us. Lord, only you are worthy of our worship and our praise. We praise you today for who you are. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.